Thanks for listening to part two of my two-part episode featuring my conversation with New York Times best-selling author Alka Joshi. In this episode, Alka continues her discussion about her path to publishing her debut novel, The Henna Artist. We talk about the Netflix series in the works by The Henna Artist and book two in the trilogy, The Secret Keeper of Jaipur. We discuss the publication of The Henna Artist and the novel's meteoric rise to bestseller, although it looked like the 2020 launch might not succeed after the pandemic caused everything to shut down in March. Make sure to listen to part one of the conversation with New York Times bestselling author Alka Joshi. See the show notes for all the ways you can find Alka online. Join me on an adventure, a literary romp through India. Meet me at the corner of Patchouli and Chai, where books, cinema, and conversation collide. I'm Lovelace Cook. I'll be your tour guide. Welcome to Bollywood and Books. You talked about having two developmental editors. So I'm curious, how did that come about? Oh, well, you know, my agent had been working with me for three or four years. And I got so frustrated. I said, Emma, at what point are you going to stop telling me to keep changing the novel? I really want to know, are we ever going to send this off to a publisher? She said, well, listen, I have taken you as far as I can take you. I'm just an agent. I'm not even an editor. And I said, oh, I thought that's what we were doing. You were editing my book. And she said, no, there are people who do that and you have to hire them. You know, they make their living because they have so much experience, either in an agency or with a publisher to know how to edit a book so that it becomes publishable. So now you need to hire those people. I said, well, who do I call? And she gave me a couple of names. So I started calling around and then developmental editors also have, I guess, the you know right to say, I don't want to work on your novel because maybe it's not their genre. Maybe your work isn't good enough for them to take on because they only want to work with people who are really close to publishing their work. You know, I was lucky. I called the first one. She looked at my novel and she said, oh, this is really good. I like these characters. I think that you could go in this direction with it. And I didn't like the direction that she was asking me to go in. So I thought I have hired the wrong developmental editor. And also she's not telling me that I need uh, to get published right now. So uh, maybe that's not what I want to hear. I want to see what another developmental editor has to say. So then I went down uh, the list and I called around some friends about ideas they had for developmental editors. And I sent the first 30 pages to another editor. And she said, OK, I'll work with you on this. And then she sent me back even more ideas and for changes, for plot changes, for character development, for all kinds of things. And at that point, I was so frustrated, I quit working on the novel altogether. And I just thought, I'm never going to go back to this novel again. But then I changed my mind about a year and a half later when I ran across the novel and I started reading it, you know, after distance from work that you have done, sometimes you get a really new appreciation for it. You think, wow, I wrote this. I can't believe I wrote this. Where do these characters come from? How did I do this? And I thought, okay. I think this novel is good. And let me just go back and read what uh, those editors were telling me. Then when I went back to read their comments, 
I could see them for what they were. They were very encouraging. They were saying, you are absolutely going to get this published. No worries about that. It's just that here's a nuance that we'd like to point out to you. Here's here's something that would take very little, uh, a brushstroke, maybe a change in a word, maybe a change in this character's idea in this particular scene that would really help elevate this novel to bestseller status. That's really what they were telling me. So then I went back and made all those changes. And so that is my experience with developmental editors. I encourage everybody to get developmental editors, but particularly ones that are interested in the genre you're writing in. I talked to a woman who said, you know, I've been working with a nonfiction editor and I'm writing this piece of fiction. I said, why are you working with a nonfiction editor? And she said, oh, because he wasn't charging me anything. I said, well, you know what? This is your future. You are investing in your future. So pay the money to somebody who is within your genre, who has worked with other authors in your genre and made their novels better. And, you know, go and spend the money on them and have them help you with your book. So, you know, don't just work with an editor because they're willing to work with you for free. What is it that people always say advice is worth what you pay for it? That's absolutely right. You trusted your instincts, but you were willing to listen and you needed that distance. It was because I had worked all those years in advertising and I wanted my clients to listen to what I was trying to tell them, where I thought the direction could go because I felt that that would give them the most bang for their buck. Suddenly I found myself in the position of actually a client because I am listening now to my editors telling me what they think is the best thing to do with the novel. And I had to say, I need to give them the same ear, the same respect that I want from my clients, that I expect from my clients. I want to listen to what they have to say and see if there's anything there that I could do something with. You said your agent had suggested, let's reduce the number of pages from over 400. I I think people don't know with a novel that there's a certain word count publishers want to see. No, in my case, it had nothing to do with word count. And it wasn't that she said, cut out 150 pages. What she said was, right now, you have a focus on both Lakshmi and Radha. You are writing these alternate chapters, one with Lakshmi, one with Radha, one with Lakshmi, one with Radha. Those are the two sisters, the main characters of the novel. And she said, you know, I just think that Lakshmi is the more endearing character. She's the one that we absolutely love. And so I think you need to focus on Lakshmi. Stop with the other character. Stop giving her as much prominence in the book. And I said, but she's so important to the book because it's it's in the pregnancy that she has at the age of 13 that Lakshmi has to deal with. That's really the crux of the novel. And how all, are they going to deal with this major problem that's happened in 1955? Well, my agent said, but the thing is that you have to decide which of your characters is the most compelling and you have to go with that character. If your reader is having to fight to figure out who's the main character or you know, deal with a character who is less compelling than the other one, then they're going to lose interest. That's what she told me to do. So I tried to make both characters as compelling. I couldn't do it. I tried and tried. I couldn't do it. And so I had several drafts where it just wasn't working. And finally, I said, okay, Emma, 
my agent, I said, I'm going to listen to you and I'm going to see what happens if I cut out every other chapter that the young girl is uh, heading up. In doing so, it was so hard to do. It's like cutting off a limb. All those scenes that I had worked so hard on, all those pages that I had written and rewritten and rewritten. But finally, when I got to the point where I'm telling everything from Lakshmi's point of view only, I realized Emma was absolutely right. Because I also loved Lakshmi. I loved her character. And that was coming through in my writing. So when I made Lakshmi the focus of the story of the henna artist, that really made the book so much better. It made the storyline stronger. And it relegated Radha to the secondary position that she really should have been all along. Well, that was excellent advice. And Here is the beauty of all of those pages. Now, the pages that I cut out that dealt with Radha also had a lot of Malik in them. And that's the other thing is, you know, my agent had me focus on Lakshmi so much that I also had to cut out a lot of Malik. And then what happened is all of those pages (laughs) that went by the wayside uh, in the first novel, now I could mine them to write sequel number two, which is all about Malik and his backstory that I already knew and his future story that I already knew that I had to cut out of the henna artist. And then my third book, which I'm writing now, is all about Radha and all those pages in the henna artist which talked about how she got involved with the young Singh boy and how she became pregnant and all of that plays in the third novel as well. And I had the future story of how she was going to marry this architect and move to Paris. So book number three is all about Radha in Paris. <laughs> I'm going to jump back just a minute. First of all, you came out of the shoot with the henna artist in the pandemic. And all of a sudden, it was like you went from zero to 60. All of a sudden, you're a New York Times bestselling author. Tell us about that part of your journey. Sure. You know, firstly, the publisher. So HarperCollins, the imprint that actually my editor worked under was Mira Books. That's who bought the manuscript. They always intended for the henna artist to become a bestseller. That is how much care and love they had put towards this book. They put a lot of care in having me flown out to New York and to Toronto and talking to the big booksellers before the book was ever published. So this is about six months prior to the publication, before it was released. They're having me do interviews. They're having me, you know, they scheduled all of these video conferences with people and I I felt so loved by them. You know, the moment I walked into the offices of HarperCollins, they had the henna artist with its cover splashed all over the lobby. They had a champagne toast for me. They had a cake with the cover of the henna artist on it. And the entire staff came out, you know, 33 people from that floor came out and, you know, talked to me and then had me sign their books. It was amazing. I felt so special. So I always knew that they were putting a lot of strength behind the book. Then they said, so now you need to schedule a release party, you need to schedule a launch party, that kind of thing. 
So I did that in my hometown here. I had, you know, 150 people coming on two separate nights. I had hired a sitar player and a tabla player and a dancer to dance the scene where Lakshmi is saying goodbye to her house. It was it was magic. It was magic. I had all of the little clay lights all uh, set up around the room and I had the marigold garlands everywhere. It was gorgeous. And yet three days before it got canceled, the venue shut down. Why? Because of the pandemic, everything shut down. I didn't get to have one launch event and then libraries and bookstores and even Amazon stopped shipping out the books. Everybody closes down. I just thought, okay, I know that they got a lot of pre-orders at uh, HarperCollins. That's how they know if a book is going to sell or not. They push a lot of money behind the outreach to booksellers. And so a lot of people had bought the henna artist. It was just sitting in their uh, warehouses and in their back rooms to be put out on the shelves, but nobody could go to bookstores anymore or libraries because they were all shut down. I reached out to book clubs on social media and I just said, would you please talk to me about this book? I am beside myself. I have spent 10, 12 years of my life working on this book at this point, and I don't get to have any launch events, nothing, no book signings, nothing. It's not like the movies here. (laughs) And so people were so kind on social media. They started reaching out and I talked to maybe three people at a time, five people at a time, then seven people. And then they told other friends, they said, oh, here's an author who wants to talk about her book. So people just started, you know, telling other people and it just grew. So far, I have spoken to more than 720 book clubs in just two years, virtually. I think they were my lifeline. They were my lifeline at a time when everybody was feeling so isolated. I was talking to book clubs every single night, sometimes two, sometimes three, sometimes four. (laughs) It was lovely to have that community. And I finally felt like I found my tribe. But then I think about a couple of months later, my editor called and said, Reese Witherspoon loves your book and she wants to talk about it. Well, that just made everything explode exponentially. Reese Witherspoon, I think, is to be credited for giving us female authors such a platform where we don't have to compete with male authors for the attention. We don't have to compete with male authors like we generally do at publishing houses. We don't have to compete with male authors for the big ads in the New York Times, for all the interviews on NPR and New Yorker, and you know, all of those kinds of things. It's usually male authors who get all of that attention. So Reese Witherspoon, I think, created an, an amazing empire for just female authors. And I will always be grateful to her for that. And it wasn't until she endorsed the book that then all these movie companies that had been holding on to the manuscript said, "Okay, we were waiting for a major celebrity to endorse this book. We like it, but we wanted to know if somebody major would like it. And if she likes it, we want to buy the option to make it into a series. So Netflix right now is in the process of developing it as a, a streaming series that will hopefully be shown for season after season. That is so exciting. The trajectory from the labor of love and the trajectory, like this rising star, you are the most giving person to give to the book clubs and to give to everyone. You just have a wonderful heart. Well, I think it's because I get so much, right? I mean, every time I talk to a group of eight, 10, 50 people, you know, they're telling me how the characters resonated with them. 
People in India are telling me that these books remind them of their lives. They remind them of their mother's lives. They remind them of Jaipur, where they either used to live at one time or still live. They remind me that they went to school in the upper reaches of the Himalayas, just like I have many of my characters going. I have people from all over the world writing to me and saying, I get the women's agency part of this book. I get it. I have been there. I have lived this life where I've had to fight for everything I have. I had a 90-year-old man from Slovakia write to me recently. His grandson is named Igor, and Igor is the only one who speaks English and could type for my reader. And so my 90-year-old reader is saying, I'm having my, my grandson or my son Igor write this to you because I just read the henna artist in my language and I loved it. And even though I've never been to India, I can relate to it because it's so much like a village that I grew up in. I just get so much energy from readers constantly giving me that kind of feedback. And then I know I've done something, right? Readers write to me and say, Look, I see you talking on podcasts and different shows and being interviewed, and I see that you're over 60. And I think I could still write. I have a book in me, and I set it aside a long time ago, or I've always thought about writing, and I never have. So I'm looking at you thinking, I could do it too. Do you know how rewarding that is to think that somebody is getting that kind of affirmation and, and inspiration from something I've done? That is just remarkable. And then I have young women who are, are writing to me saying, you know, the kind of patriarchy that you're writing about in the henna artist, that still exists today in whatever work environment we're in. They might be doctors, they might be lawyers, they might be administrators, but they're still experiencing a level of inequity in their gender that I'm talking about in the book, and they can relate to it completely. And so I think all of this kind of feedback from uh, readers is valuable to a writer. I understand what they're resonating with. I understand which characters are resonating most with them. I understand also uh, what they feel about the dynamics between different characters and whether they like the dynamic or not. I am realizing there was enough energy in that dynamic to give them a reaction. And that's all we writers are really looking for, right? We're looking for the reaction. It doesn't matter if it's positive or negative, but as long as you have uh, incited a reader into a reaction, that is, I think, the key to good writing. Your novels have resonated internationally, striking a chord that you've just described that is huge. When I have interviewed other Indian American women authors, I was surprised to find this thread of domestic abuse. I hadn't thought about the patriarchy in India and the domestic abuse. You know, I, I actually created the domestic abuse because I needed for Lakshmi to have a reason to leave her marriage. And I couldn't think of a better one than that, where she really felt that her life was threatened. I needed to give her a concrete reason because she has a lovely mother-in-law in Hari's mother. And she has a good life where she has enough to eat. She has her uh, mother-in-law teaching her about herbal remedies and working with all of these women who come to her mother. And her mother is serving the role of a medicine woman, basically. 
she has a, a pretty okay life. I just thought, what else would make her want to leave this marriage? And so that's why I put in the domestic abuse. I personally don't have any experience with it. It's just that I know that it takes place no matter what class of people are involved, no matter what cultures are involved. It's a problem throughout the world to have women be physically abused by men. Definitely is. And that's why I love the strength, the growth, the way that your heroine is so powerful and resourceful. I've heard you talk about our misperceptions about India. I know that I certainly had them before I traveled to India the first time. But the second time, I started to see the resilience, just the enterprising people, people who were had generous, a generous spirit, who really made the best of things no matter what they had. And it left me with the point, of, I don't need as much as I need. Exactly. People live with so little sometimes in India. But here's the other thing about why I think India feels so different to people. You know, here in the West, we actually segregate people according to class. Physically, we have areas of our cities that are wealthy, and we know what those enclaves are. We have areas that are middle class, and we have areas that are poor, that are dilapidated, that have projects in them, and so on. And so we we tend to physically separate out the very different socioeconomic classes. In India, I find that on any, any given street, you might have a very large house, very prosperous family right next to a hovel. <laughs> and uh, that may be right next to a very modest bungalow. It's not as if people are segregated into many different socioeconomic communities. So I think that people in India day to day are faced with poverty. They encounter you know, people of all different socioeconomic classes, and they actually live cheek by jowl with them, which I think makes them a little more immune to thinking of the poor as this huge class of people that they can't live with. Whereas I think in the West, when we see the homeless, let's say in downtown areas of every city now, every city I've been to now has huge encampments of homeless. We feel guilty. We feel, you know, in, from our privileged and sheltered places, we feel guilty. We feel maybe we should be doing more, or sometimes we look away, or sometimes we think, oh, well, you know, they just caused that poverty for themselves. And so we, it's not our fault that that happened. So there are, there's a whole bunch of things that come up for us that I don't think come up for Indians because they're living with these people day to day. They're seeing them. They're hiring them to work in their homes. They're hiring them to work in their factories. It's sort of a very different way of regarding lifestyles of people that are very different from ours. You've got so many wonderful things going on. You've got your third novel about Rana coming out in when is that? When can we expect to pre-order? March, March, 2023. I'm just finishing up the final edits now. And I think it's, you know, it's such a fun novel because I get to write about Paris and I get to write about India. So both. And of course, Radha is going to be writing in her first person for the first time. So that'll be interesting. And also Lakshmi is a major part of the story. 
And the fact that Radha is a perfumer, that's another major part of the story. I wanted to capture in each of my books the ways in which India has contributed to the world, to the global sphere. And the way that they have contributed in the third book is in the fragrance, the raw ingredients that many fragrances throughout the world use, sandalwood oil, vetiver oil, jasmine, damask rose, clove, cinnamon. These are all the spices that all those traders, the explorers like Christopher Columbus were looking for, you know, all those centuries ago. And they're all in India. So India has been the major contributor of the raw ingredients that go into fragrances. And Radha has gravitated toward the fragrance industry because of her DNA, basically. It's such a um, natural for her after having mixed Lakshmi's henna paste for so long and putting different ingredients into the food that Lakshmi was feeding her clients that, you know, she would want to also then work with all the raw ingredients that go into fragrance. And it was fun for me to go to Paris and talk to all these master perfumers and go to fragrance houses and learn how fragrances are created and, you know, who creates them? How long does it take to become a master perfumer? These are all things that Radha is experiencing in book number three. And that was fascinating for me to bring to light. You are the most amazing Instagram person. (laughs) (laughs) I love Instagram because there's so many book readers on Instagram and they're genuinely interested in learning about different cultures and different people and how, how they can solve some of the problems in their own lives by reading books. So I'm a huge fan of Instagram. I love it. Well, it's great. Where can people find you? My Instagram handle is the Alka Joshi. And my Facebook handle is, of course, Alka Joshi, and you can find me there. I have two different accounts. I have a personal account and I have the Henna Artist account there. But you can also find me on my website, alkajoshi.com. You can find me on Twitter at Alka Joshi. So it's really just my name. I'm so lucky to have such a short Indian name as opposed to one of the very long ones. So it makes it easy for people to find me, but Google me. And also you can look at my YouTube channel because there you will see these little videos that I've done about how to get an agent or, or why traditional publishing versus self-publishing or, you know, how you deal with self-doubt as a writer. So there's all of those kinds of little videos that I did because people kept asking me those questions. And I thought, you know what, let me just do a couple of short videos and have people look at those and see if that might be helpful. I want to encourage every woman to write her story. I think every person has a story in them. And I think that it's going to be a unique story because none of us have lived each other's lives completely. So I want to encourage women to do that. No matter what age they are, they should be writing how they feel about life, how they feel that they have conquered some of the biggest challenges in their lives and what they've learned throughout their lives. You know, so we can leave that as a record, not only of our time period and our generations, but I think also as a way forward for young women to have a roadmap uh, of how to deal with certain things. That's a wonderful thought too. I heard you say the Netflix series, it's being filmed in India. 
Yes, it will be filmed in Jaipur, definitely. Because, you know, we just can't recreate Jaipur anywhere. Where else are you going to see the Hawamahel? Where else are you going to see the palace? Rajasthan is the land of princely states, and that's where most of the palaces were. It's hard to recreate that in America or in Canada or in Australia. And yeah, that it, definitely for the authenticity of it, it has to be filmed in India. Isn't that cool? It's brilliant. Thinking about your journey from young, young Alka in Jaipur and in India, from the young lady who played with dolls in this house that had the swing and watching someone shoot a cobra. <laughs> All those, you know, these wonderful images from that young person to where you are now. It's a great story and it's a wonderful example for women, for young women, you paid your dues. You know, thank you so much, Lovelace, for reminding me with that question about all of these sort of disparate memories that I have from India as a child and as a young girl. I don't think I take very much time to think about those, but it makes me think, oh, maybe there's a short story that I could write now because you've just inspired me. Thank you. <laughs> Well, I've loved listening to your interviews. I've loved just reading about you because you have such a gift. You are a wonderful speaker. After a while, it just becomes second nature to get in front of people and talk. And so, yeah, I think that the advertising world and making all those presentations, I must have made thousands of presentations. And I think that that really helps build your confidence. It helps you know how to engage an audience. It helps you figure out, are they paying attention to me now? Or were they paying attention to me when I was talking about this? Is it better for me to then go back to that? You know, There's all of these different ways in which you can do that. And I think for me, it's always interesting to figure out this particular audience that I'm going to be talking to, what's going to be interesting for them to know? Alka, thank you so much. For my um, listeners, I'm going to have all the information on the show notes about Alka Joshi, all of the incredible awards, the accolades that she has received as a result of her writing. I'll have a copy of the transcript of our conversation as well. So thank you so much. Thank you, Lovelace. It was lovely. Thanks to Glasgow resident Jonathan Chapman, classically trained musician, artist, website designer, and a really great guy who introduced me to Edinburgh-based Red Note Ensemble and their album, Reels to Ragas, whose music you're listening to with renowned tabla player Kuljit Bamra. For more information, see the show notes at bollywoodandbooks.com where East truly meets West. Music